As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday MBA, interviews with best-selling authors, innovative thought leaders, and top-shelf executives, all sharing their best techniques and tips that you don't learn in business school. I'm your host, Kevin Crane, and I'm so pleased that you're listening. Our guest today is Lorraine Marchand. Lorraine is Executive Managing Director of Enterprise Solutions and Strategic Partnerships at Murative, a data software and technology firm serving the health and government social services industries. She's an adjunct professor of management and serves on the Healthcare and Pharmaceutical Management Program Advisory Board at Columbia Business School. But she's with us today to talk about her new book, co-authored with John Hank, The Innovation Mindset, Eight Essential Steps to Transform Any Industry. Lorraine, welcome to Everyday MBA. Tell us more now. How do you define an innovation mindset? To me, Kevin, an innovation mindset, if I were to give it a definition, is an insatiable curiosity, a passion for problem solving, and embracing change. And while those are lovely words to express about innovation, putting them into action is the tough part. And when I've spoken with both startup entrepreneurs as well as executives who are innovating in large corporations, it's interesting because oftentimes if I ask them to do a diagnostic of those behaviors, and I do have a diagnostic that I've prepared They score themselves high on a, on a scale of one to 10. A lot of them come in at, at eights and nines. And when I, we really try to get under that, what we find is that we as individuals may believe that we're very curious, that we love to solve problems, and that we embrace change. But we may not look at those behaviors in the context of the environment that either encourages or restricts us from being innovative. So there really is a difference between the behaviors of the individual and how they want to perform, how they want to innovate, how they want to be perceived, and sometimes how that plays out in implementation in our day-to-day in a very structured corporate environment or in a crazy, hectic startup where we have a lot of unknowns. Well, certainly innovation sounds great and we all want to do it. But as you rightly point out, it's all about managing the change and solving problems to make that innovation happen. I was just reading the other day, something like 95% percent 
of new ideas, innovation initiatives, change management initiatives, I mean, across the board, fail. Why so high? Why such a high percentage of fail rate? This is really the premise behind my book in my own experience innovating from an early age at 13, which I'm, I'm happy to share that story with you. My dad was a, an inventor. And so I learned the, the, the task of innovation and the mindset really from my dad. But from those very early informative experiences, all the way through being an innovator in large corporations, particularly in pharma companies and technology companies, and even to developing, designing and launching my own startups. What I have found is that the challenge that we often have with innovation is the idea of trying to find, a, well, identifying a problem that a customer is willing to pay for. And it is so easy to spin up solutions, have great ideas of things that we want to do. And that's a very common way that innovators and entrepreneurs proceed. In fact, I would say that probably 80 to 90% of what we might call innovations, quote unquote, emanate from somebody starting with a solution and then looking for a problem to solve. And there are many examples of this happening, which I could also provide but the correct way to do innovation, again, in my own experience and observations and, and the people that I've interviewed, including in the book, if we have observed and witnessed and have evidence of a problem, if we have a well-defined, articulated problem statement, and then if we use the solution process in order to design the best fit for that problem, and then if our goal is to achieve commercial success, we test and retest that with a customer, confirming that we're solving a problem that they wish to solve, and importantly, one that they want to pay for. And pay can have different definitions in this context. It doesn't have to be taking money out of your wallet necessarily or your electronic bank account. Do you know that the status quo, the default of doing nothing, is also a form of competition for a new idea. It's also a form of, of paying. If I have to change my behavior, if I have to change the way I'm doing something, that might be too much effort for me. I might not be willing to change in order to embrace your solution. So whether it's a financial transaction or whether it's getting someone to change their behavior, the customer has to be willing to commit. So what you're saying is having a product before having a problem is a problem. <laughs> I guess why well, I didn't really mean to say it that way, but okay. So here's my question then. Suppose I'm an inventor. I, I'm, I'm an innovator. I'm a, I'm, I'm a thinker, an idea person. I have what I think is a great new idea for a new product or a new service. And I want to reach the marketplace, but I also want to make sure that I'm addressing this problem, this customer problem that you're talking about. How do I do that? What's the first thing I should do to validate my idea? Well, I hope that if you have an idea that it has emanated from your observation of a problem, and so often problems are right in front of us, we don't have to go too far afield to look for a problem to solve. But let's say that you have an idea to solve a problem that you've observed, you get very excited about your new idea. What I usually tell executives and students alike, let's take a pause. Let's go back 
and let's really understand the problem that you thought you saw, that you assumed you saw, that maybe you did see. Let's define it. Let's make sure that it's been observed in its natural habitat, that it's recurring. It's not just a one-time thing. Let's define it. Let's test it with the customer and the stakeholders that are experiencing that problem, number one. And then, and this is a, a rule that my dad taught me, when we would find a problem around the house, he would always insist that my brother and I come up with three ways to solve it. It's a really good discipline to get into. Hold that fabulous idea for just a moment. Look at the problem, break it down, deconstruct it. And now, in addition to your solution, what are the two other ways you could possibly solve that problem? Once you have those three solutions laid out, then you can take each of them through what I call a fit exercise, which means what kind of an impact will this solution have? What's the level of effort that's required? And is it going to solve a customer's need? And with the help of some customer research, you can down-select those solutions to three. If yours survives, great. If it doesn't, it means that you pivoted. You had to change some direction in terms of what your assumptions were. You use the marketplace and the customer research to help move you in the right direction. You probably landed on a better solution, a better fit, and one that will more than likely reach the commercial marketplace successfully. So bottom line, do not fall in love with your idea until you have gone back to the research, created that problem statement, tested it with customers, come up with your three solutions, and then determine the one that is the best fit. From the customer's perspective, not your own personal bias. Hi, I'm Tamma Keeves, and I'm the author of Thriving Through Uncertainty, and you're listening to Everyday MBA with Kevin Crane. You know, folks, I have the pleasure of interviewing some of today's top business authors and thought leaders, and I learn a lot, and so do our listeners. Would you like to be a guest on Everyday MBA? Well, I'd love to speak with you, too. Are you an author, a thought leader, an entrepreneur, or a consultant? Be a guest. Let's talk about your ideas, why they're important, and what your recommendations are for our listeners. Find out more at everyday-mba.com slash guest. That's everyday-mba.com slash guest. You're listening to Everyday MBA. We are here speaking with life sciences market maker, innovator, and author Lorraine Marchand about her book, The Innovation Mindset, Eight Essential Steps to Transform Any Industry. Now, Lorraine, indeed, your book reveals eight laws for making an innovation idea a reality. We don't have time to cover them all in great detail, but briefly, can you summarize the laws, the eight laws, and why they are so powerful together? Of course. And the, the first law, Kevin, really starts with what we were just discussing, and that is observing a problem, something that's happening in a repeated fashion that we can define, it's specific, it's measurable, and a, a large number of individuals are experiencing it. So we have to have a very solid problem that we're hoping to, to fix. N number two is about coming up with the right solutions. And I, in the book, describe brainstorming methodologies that allow us to break the problem down, reframe it, go through different kinds of brainstorming methods such as stories and vignettes and customer experience, et cetera, 
in order to come up with those three solutions, evaluating them for their pros and cons. A law in the book is all about de-risking. So you want to look at the risk of that solution. But I would say after identifying the appropriate problem, the second most important law in that book is really customer research. And far too often, that is a very intimidating step. And whether you're a first-time innovator or you're a, a corporate guru, it is very difficult to go out to the market to talk to customers and to design your research questions in a way that is going to give you a very honest assessment of whether you're going to move that customer to buy your product or service or change the way they're doing something. And that's why I insist on the law of 100. And again, whether they're students or corporate executives, I always say you need to go out and talk to 100 different customers. There are different methods for collecting that information, but sometimes the most important nugget that you glean is in that 100 interview. Another important law would be the pivot. And so often after we've done our customer research, we've come up with our minimal viable prototype, we've done a lot of testing, we get feedback as we should get feedback. And to me, a pivot is changing direction without, without compromising your vision or your strategy. So we're still going to solve world hunger. That isn't changing. But instead of going in this direction and, and developing this kind of a, a food substitute, we're going to move over here because we've learned through our research that this is going to be the better fit of a solution. And so many companies, if you look at PayPal and Netflix and YouTube, some of the best brands today pivoted at some point in their journey based on this customer input and this market research. So it's a really smart thing for an innovator to continue to look at all those market dynamics, look at that customer feedback, and be willing to be agile and make those adjustments and move in a new direction when they need to. And we also touched on the law of, of risk. That's another important law in the book is how do you de-risk your solution? Your risks can come in the form of, of technical, the technical development or engineering of your solution or new way of doing things. There can be marketplace risks. There can be financial risks, reputational risks, resource risks. But you have to do a full risk assessment of that solution so that you can determine how to mitigate those risks and, again, accelerate that path to marketplace. And, and there are other laws as well around developing your business model, your business plan, coming up with the right kind of communication, messaging, very influential ability to pitch, whether that's investors or internal stakeholders. Those laws are all covered in the book as well. But I wanted to elaborate on a couple of the ones that you suggested we highlight. One of the things you said in there that's I also see in your book is, is that 100 customers can't be wrong. Tell us more about that. So when I think about talking to customers, I use different research methodologies. And so one can use one-on-one -on -one interviews to get a little bit more in-depth about the problem, a little bit more in-depth about what the solution would need to be in order to solve the problem from the customer's perspective. From there, you could have small groups or what we might call focus groups where you bring in a different uh, set of customers in order to have a discussion about the problem and the solution and how willing they would be to adopt that. 
And you can also do surveys. A lot of times those first two types of research help to inform a survey, which of course is much more quantitative. So when we can talk with customers in those different formats, each of those methods is going to bring forward different views on the problem, different pieces of information. And as we continue to do our research, it's like, it's like putting puzzle pieces together. You know, once I know these couple pieces, now I know to ask this question, or maybe now I've heard something about this risk. I want to go into it a little bit more in detail with this particular customer. So you're, you're following all of the pieces. You're a little bit of a detective or a sleuth. You're putting your story together together and you're using each interview to build your evidence, your information, your knowledge. So you're that much smarter and informed as you continue to do your customer research and ask new questions. Once I have a great idea, once I have a plan, I've still got to sell it to a bunch of people, stakeholders, investors, potential partners. And one of the things you say in your book is there is no innovation without persuasion. Tell me how I can up my ability to be persuasive and tell my story in ways that matter. Well, other than saying the obvious, which is if you buy the book, you'll find the laws to follow in order to do that. But, but you know, truly the way that you would frame out your problem, your solution and pitch your innovation it really follows the steps in the book and it also, those also follow what I might call your typical pitch deck. So your 10 basic slides that you're going to use for an investor, an internal stakeholder, whomever it is that you want to influence, but you have to be credible and you have to be data based and you have to show that you've got the rationale and justification for your plan. That's what individuals are going to be scrutinizing. So when I say that you're going to be influential, it's going to be because your your research, what you've put into this is absolutely impeccable and you're not going to raise any questions or eyebrows that you haven't really done your homework. So again, very solid problem statement, solutions that come from a bit of, of interrogating different ways that you can address this. The de-risking part, really important, showing the investor that you've been willing to pivot in response to the data that's come in and, and shaped your view on this, understanding your business model. How am I going to make money? When am I going to make money? An accurate forecast, a plan that really makes sense, and pulling all this together in a very persuasive, influential way with the way you communicate, finding what that that key piece is that's going to motivate that particular investor because um, communication has to be very personalized. So we don't just have sort of a generic pitch deck and leave it at that. Every time we go out and talk about our solution, we need to do our homework with that particular stakeholder or individual that we want to influence to know what matters to them. There might be a different piece of this that matters to different individuals that we're talking with. But having that basic foundation, doing the homework, following those steps, and then knowing that you've got to customize your message and your pitch for those individuals that you want to reach, that usually has the highest yield of success. Well, the book is a thoughtful stepwise approach for innovators and for entrepreneurship. Can you give us an example of one entrepreneur or one organization that has been particularly successful using this approach? What did they do? What were the results and how can we do it too? Uh, there was one particular 
diagnostic company that I was working with that followed the, the steps. So they went out to the marketplace. They tried to understand some of the unmet need in the area of oncology and how tumors were being diagnosed. They then came back into their laboratory. They had some work that they wanted to do around the design of a certain type of diagnostic. After they developed their prototype, they talked to physicians and hospital administrators and pharmaceutical executives and a hundred different customers in order to get input into whether this solution would in fact be satisfactory. Would it be priced correctly? Would it really solve the problem? From there, they went on to develop their prototype. They put it in the market in a very contained geographic area, working with several different hospitals, really tested it. From there, they put their business plan and their business model together, created their their pitch deck that was able to influence investors. Uh, they raised capital in a very difficult environment and have been very successful moving forward, continuing to raise capital pulling in data that their diagnostic is indeed solving a problem and they're getting very close to being able to launch it. So I'm proud to say they followed the steps and are really a very iconic example of what you can accomplish when you follow a discipline methodology. I'm so pleased that you're listening to this podcast. If you like what I do, why not let me do it for you? My audio podcasting services give voice to your success and expertise. Do you have a happy customer? Let them tell their story in their own words. Need to get your subject matter experts heard by new clients? Let's do an interview and we'll discuss the topics at hand. Are you an author, an analyst, a C-suite leader? Let me create a custom podcast for you that gets your message out to a new audience worldwide. Want to find out more? Go to cranegroup.com. That's C-R-A-I-N-E, cranegroup.com. You're listening to Everyday MBA. We have been speaking with Lorraine Marchand about her book, The Innovation Mindset. Now, Lorraine, we have reached the action item round of the show. I'm wondering if you could please provide us with three quick action items that our listeners can do to take advantage of the ideas and advice in your book. You know, Kevin, I find that the very most fundamental issue that innovators struggle with, again, whether they're, they've been innovating for years or whether they're first timers, is how to identify problems. Everybody seems to struggle with how do I really find a problem worth solving? The first thing that you need to do is tap into that curiosity, that passion for problem solving, and make yourself a student of observation. And I say on a daily basis, grab your electronic journal or whatever it is that you take notes in and observe three problems every day. You can be sitting in traffic. You can be at the coffee maker. You can be walking the dog. Write down the problems that you're observing. Do that on a daily basis, and I will guarantee you that at the end of several weeks, you will have a very interesting list of problems and probably problems that are within your scope and remit of solving and certainly ones that are going to be very personal to you. That's number one. Number two, do not be afraid of customer research. It's easier than ever before. Take advantage of social media. Take advantage of SurveyMonkey. Take advantage of all the different ways now that we can go out and reach customers. But make sure that you get some help in terms of the design of your research so that you're asking the right questions, open-ended questions, questions that probe the problem. 
Again, you don't want to do your customer research and only focus on your solution. Make sure your research is focusing on the problem. And third, please always be a surveyor. Look around you. Keep your eyes and ears open. Ask everybody in your network to do the same. Watch those market dynamics. Watch changes in the environment, restrictions, regulations, things that are changing with your customer. And if you need to pivot, do it early. And I also say do it as often as you need to because pivoting is really important in order to make sure that you stay on that road to success. Lorraine, it's been great speaking with you today. We're almost out of time, but before I let you go, just one last question. You've given us some great advice here today, but what was the best piece of advice that you ever received and how has it shaped who you are? Well, I think the best experience I had was when my father took me and my brother to a diner uh, three days in a row in August in Wheaton, Maryland. And he asked us to observe what was slowing down table turnover. And my dad, as I mentioned, was an inventor and really a believer in, in identifying problems. And it was really that early experience of having the stopwatch, the notebook, being able to interview the waitresses and the bus boys. And we ultimately designed our first product, which we called the sugar cube, because we found that it was empty sugar packets that were slowing down table turnover. So I would just say that the best piece of advice I got was through my dad, who really encouraged me to be curious. He also encouraged me to solve problems. He showed me that it was fun and they could also be lucrative. So I've been a student of problem solving and innovation since the tender age of 13. That is Lorraine Marchand. Get her book, The Innovation Mindset. Lorraine, thank you so much for being our guest today on Everyday MBA. Thank you, Kevin. It's been my pleasure. That'll do it for this episode of Everyday NBA. And do you want to be a guest on the show? It could happen. Join our Knowledge Leadership Circle and be featured in an interview of your own. Be a guest. Just go to everyday-mba.com slash guest for more information. That's everyday-mba.com slash guest. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 